We've been going through the book of Mark now for months, I don't know how long, and this is it. This is the last chapter. Now we're going to close up the book of Mark this week, and next week we'll start a series on the Ten Commandments, so you have that to look forward to. So there's something uh, unique in this text, if you turn there, Mark chapter 16, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8. But before we, we dive into our text today, I want to draw your attention to this bracketed portion that ends Mark. This is um, at the very last section of Mark, chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. You'll see that it's bracketed off with double brackets. And you'll see right above it, it says, Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 through 20. So what's going on here? What do we make of this? Well, I want to just... I'm limiting myself, I'm trying to limit myself to four minutes to explain this to you, so uh, wish me luck. Um, Let me start my timer here, actually. There we go. All right, so it may be a surprise to you, hopefully not, that the Bible was not dropped out of the sky. It was written by men who were carried along by the Holy Spirit onto paper. And then... For the last 2,000 plus years, it has been passed down, and of course, we didn't have a printing press until pretty recently, which means men copied it. Over and over again, very diligent men copied the text of Scripture. And there's two passages in the New Testament that, of significant length, that are um, questioned as original. And this, the long ending of Mark, is one of them. The other one is from John 7, the story of the woman caught in adultery. Um, So so what's going on here? Why is this included, first of all? Well, almost all Greek manuscripts, okay, another data point, the Bible was not originally in English, it was originally, or the New Testament was originally in Greek. So this is a translation of the New Testament so that we can read it and understand it. Um, Almost all of the Greek manuscripts include this portion, chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. But many of them include a note, just like the one in your Bible that says, hey, we want to include this, but we don't think it's original. So what's going on here? Well, the translators of this Bible, the ESV, bracket it out because they're saying, we also don't think this is original, but we want to give it to you so you know because this is how it's traditionally been done. So why is it likely not original? Okay, a couple of reasons. Um, two of the earliest and best Greek manuscripts do not include this uh, last uh, 9 through 20. The words and the style are different from the rest of Mark. I would encourage you, we're not going to read it today, but I encourage you to read it later and just read it for yourself. You'll see that it, it's basically a summary of a lot of what happens in the book of Acts and some of the other gospels. So it's nothing new. It's nothing that's not true. It's just not, we don't think it's inspired scripture. Uh, But it's very different from the rest of the book of Mark. Another reason is ancient church fathers who lived in the 200s, 300s, and 400s all knew about this. And they said, yeah, we've seen it. We don't think it's original. We don't think Mark wrote it. We don't think it's scripture. Um, That's Eusebius, Jerome, and Severus, those guys. If you're a church historian, you know who they are. So we agree with the Bible translators that this is not... um, the inspired word of God. These last verses are not the inspired word of God. There's, there's good stuff in there and true stuff, but we don't think it's scripture, so we're not going to preach on it today. Um, 
So that's my explanation. I just want to say two sort of closing things. Uh, as a denomination, we believe that Scripture, as it was originally written, is inspired by God. And it has been faithfully passed down to us by men. And we have good reason um, to believe that what we have in front of us is, is um, the Word of God. The other thing I'll say is that uh, the Bible, um, scholars have something like 25,000 or more uh, manuscripts of the New Testament such that our confidence in the accuracy of the Scripture as we have it today is actually better than it's ever been uh, because of all the scholarship, the organization that's gone into cataloging all these different texts and cross-referencing them. We have better um, reliability than, than ever before. And by way of comparison, there is no other ancient document that it comes even close to the Bible in terms of reliability. Say the Bible is something like 10 times better than the next best thing from the ancient world. And, and maybe more. I mean, it could be 100 times. It depends how you want to calculate it. Uh, so I'll, I'll stop there and I'll just say, if you have any questions about this, I'd love to talk to you about it. Nathan would love to talk to you about it. Um, there's lots of good books about how we got the Bible as it is today. And then finally, um, at the beginning of March, we're going to start a Sunday school series on the Bible. And the very first, that very first week will actually cover some of why you should believe the Bible is trustworthy. Um, so that is four minutes and 38 seconds. Not bad. Okay, thank you. Thank you. All right, so let's actually, that was like a seminary, miniature semi, seminary lesson, but it's important. I want you guys to understand that the Bible is trustworthy. I don't want to just gloss over that. So that, that is important, um, but it's not a sermon. So let's, let's look at our text today. Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. If you weren't here last week or the weeks following, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And so now we come to the first Sunday. Um, not the first Sunday, but the first Sunday of the resurrection. So let's read. This is God's word. When the Sabbath was passed... Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is God's word. Let me pray. 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for your word. Lord, help us to believe in its reliability and to believe that you rose from the dead. It is a bold claim. It is an impossible claim. And yet, Lord, we believe it. Help our unbelief. Lord, I pray uh, that your Holy Spirit would be here. Give me words to speak and give um, us all ears to hear. And would you change us, shape us with your word and your spirit to be more like you. He who has ears, let him hear. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Paul Miller's book, uh, The J-Curve, which I highly recommend to you, he tells the story of a young woman named Emma, and she's fictional, but you maybe, um, you can relate to this, so listen to this. Emma begins life dreaming that she can be anything she wants as a young girl. As a young girl, she imagines becoming a Disney princess and finding true love. She begins her pilgrimage by auditioning with multiple princes in high school. In her 20s, she moves in with several boyfriends. She hopes that offering herself physically will lead a man to commit to her. But all she finds are multiple partners and no lovers. By her early 30s, Emma's dreams are dying Fear and insecurity have replaced what she now realizes was an empty hope. She has experienced the grittiness of life, so she begins to shut down emotionally. She was offered a dream as a child. She feels betrayed. She began with hope, and she is ending with death. Like Emma... We all have hopes. For some of us, it's falling in love. For others, it's being rich or or having a great career or having lots of children. But life is not what we imagined. Men talk like they love you, and then they dump you. They won't commit. Recession hits, and you lose your job. Or if nothing else, absolute best case scenario, you watch as you get older and older and your body deteriorates. And the longer you live, the more losses you will take. So you begin to lose hope. You feel stuck. As one by one, your false hopes are exposed. They're exposed as false promises. And some of us may be in that place right now where we, we, we are, our hopes are being ripped out of our hands. We realize this is never going to happen. And if you're not there now, some of you will find yourself there. I mean, all of us will find ourselves there at some point. And as we look at our passage today, this is exactly where it begins. In this place of darkness, this place of hopelessness, this place where everything they had built their life upon has been shattered to pieces. So I want to, as we look at our passage, I want to answer this question, how can you suffer so much loss and yet live a life full of hope? 
and you'll see in your bulletin the outline printed. First, you must abandon worldly hopes. And this is basically the bad news, the hard news. And we have to keep reminding ourselves this time and time again. Let's look there at verse 1 and 2. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. So these are the same three women that a a chapter ago we saw who were faithfully stuck by Jesus' side when he was going to the cross. And here they are again, eager to anoint Jesus' body with spices. And just to understand what that anointing is, it's very like it's, you know, something like bringing flowers to someone's grave, right? It's... It's the modern day bringing flowers to someone's grave. So what's, what's propelling these three women? They want to show Jesus honor because they love him. And even though he's dead, they have not stopped loving him. They still care about their Lord. So Saturday, so this is Sunday morning. Friday, Jesus was taken down from the cross and put in the grave. Saturday is the Jewish Sabbath. They couldn't go. So Saturday night, they go and buy spices when the sun goes down. And the very first thing, Sunday morning, the very first light, they go to the grave. The very first possible chance they get, they set out to see Jesus. In contrast, where are the 11 disciples at this point? Um, They are afraid. They're hiding. Uh, Their hopes have been dashed. You may remember uh, James and John, two of his disciples, asking Jesus uh, back in Mark chapter 10. They say this. They come to Jesus and they say this. Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. You see, many of the disciples, they, they had their hopes set more on their own glory than they did on Jesus. But in contrast, these three women, Mary, Mary, and Salome, they love Christ. And they're going to love him even though he's dead and in the grave. While the disciples hoped for glory, Mary just hoped to sit at his feet. If your hope If your goal in life, whatever it is that you seek, if it is to know Christ, to have intimacy with Christ, there will always be good reason to be hopeful. But if your hope is somewhere else, if it's in your your health, or your kids, or your career, whatever it is, it will come crashing down. It's just a matter of time. I'll speak personally about this, Um, part confession and part illustration, Um, how I have seen my hopes come crashing down, my worldly hopes. I grew up as a pastor's kid, and I saw my dad. I got to see how he was respected and loved by the congregation. And I I was gifted as a young kid. I, I understood scripture, 
And my parents and others saw that, and they encouraged me, and they said, wow, you're really good at this. You should go into ministry. So I did. I I started taking on ministry positions uh, in accordance with my age. And as I got older, I took on more ministry positions. Um, and, And I enjoyed the praise of men. I went to seminary, and I took classes, and I... And I was able to go and be the, the uh, student body president in seminary. People sought me out because of my dad's pedigree. He was a professor. He was a pastor. He's well known. And I soaked it up. I loved the honor that I got. It was a false hope, though. Suddenly, my father was accused, falsely accused, And before any of the allegations could be verified, he was driven out of the church, out of the seminary. His reputation was destroyed. Our family's reputation was destroyed among many. Though the allegations proved to be false, it was too late. Gossip had had its way. It worked its way through the city. My reputation, I felt... A lot of this was just feeling, but I felt was destroyed. My honor was lost. I I no longer held my head high. I walked about in shame. So I gave up on going into ministry. What I had hoped for, the praise of men, the, the option, the desire to be a respected pastor in my hometown was gone. So I ask you, where is your hope? If you asked me 10 years ago where my hope was, I never would have said, I want, this is what I want. I want to be praised. I want to be honored. But it was happening in my heart deep down. And if you examined my life specifically enough, you probably could have said, yeah, maybe he, he, he wants that. So I'm asking you, where are you trying to go? Parents, what are your hopes for your children? Where are you leading them? Is it a life of intimacy with Christ? Or is it somewhere else? How can you, how can you know where you're putting your hope? Well, a couple of things. Look at your calendar. Where do you spend your time? Look at your money. Where do you spend your money? Look at your relationships. Where are you investing relationally? You will reap what you sow. It's just a fact. You will reap what you sow, just as I did. So I want to warn you, if you are still clinging to worldly hopes, abandon them. Do not put your hope in things that will pass away. I'm not saying that you shouldn't want a healthy life or healthy kids or a good career or to be financially stable. Those are good things, but they are all secondary things. So put them rightly in order. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Let's keep going in our outline. How can you suffer so much loss and yet live a life full of hope? Because, Christian, your hope in Christ is death-proof. Look there at verse 4. And looking up, 
they saw that the stone had been rolled back. And looking up. Okay, with this phrase, the fortunes of humanity, the entire hope of humanity turns on this phrase. Human history turns on this phrase. When their eyes looked up that morning and they saw the stone was rolled away, nothing would ever be the same for us as humans. Remember, these women were devastated and they had good reason to be devastated. They have felt the sting of death. They're at the, the bottom of the bottom. They had spent the last few days mourning the loss of the one who they loved. They're devastated because of death. Death, you see, death is the ultimate hope killer. Whatever you may be putting your hope in, death says, I want that too. Claims everything. But these women, they round the corner and they look up and the stone is rolled back. And look at verse 5. In entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. So they, they go into the tomb, and it says a young man. We know from other Gospels, um, or at least I think that from other Gospels, this is an angel. We know that often angels would appear in the form of a man. So here he is dressed in white. He's delivering a message. And they're alarmed. They're not just alarmed, but the, the word has a broad range of meanings. It means they're overwhelmed with wonder. They are distressed. They're shocked. They do not know what to make of what they see. And the angel tells them, Look at verse 6. Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. I think it's impossible to put into words the significance of this event in human history. Jesus was dead buried in the grave. His body was cold. His heart had stopped. There was no breath in his lungs. The, the blood was not pumping through his veins. Cold, lifeless. And then he took a breath. He got up. We don't know how, how that happened. We just know the power of God rose him from the dead. The song that we'll close with today says it in a really shocking way, it says, your buried body began to breathe. And when Jesus rose from the dead, a new power was unleashed on humanity. And everything changed for us. Uh, Kids, I don't know if uh, video games have bosses today. But back when I played video games, every good game had a boss. And no matter how good you were doing, you were just running through, killing all the bad guys. But at some point, you got to the boss. And no matter how good you had, you had been 
up until that point, you had to kill that boss or it was all for nothing. And they're, they're called bosses for a reason. They don't go down easily. And I can tell you, there's a number of video games that I just gave up on because I, never, I was never able to kill the boss on level 46. I don't even know, I don't even know what happens after level 46. It's over. I couldn't, beat, I couldn't take him down. Death is the ultimate video game boss. And no one has ever beaten him. No one has gotten past that level and come back and said, hey, I know what's going on after level... <clears throat> and if you have felt the sting of death, you know this. Many of you, uh, all of you, I'm sure, you know um, who Sylvester Stallone is. Famous actor. He is famous for being the star of all 24 Rocky movies. He is a man's man. Um, basically, in every movie I've ever seen him in, he's, he's taken down the bad guys. He does it with ease, and he looks cool while doing it. He has these nice catchphrases that he uses. He, it, women, if you, if you want to know what men like to fantasize about, basically just watch a Sylvester Stallone movie. That's what we like to think that we can do. We're capable of that. <clears throat> but uh, in 2012, Sylvester Stallone's 36-year-old son suddenly and surprisingly died of a heart attack. And in the next four years, he was in a deep sadness and depression. And later, when he's filming, four years later in 2016, he's filming um, Creed, and they asked him about this because he, he was still paralyzed by the devastation of losing his son. And he said, this is what Stallone says. He says, you just feel responsible that you weren't there. Here you save all these fictitious people and you can't even save your son. There's always been one thing that we men, we cannot defeat. Even if everything in our life goes perfectly and according to plan, there's a boss who no one has ever conquered. No matter what we achieve, no matter how much money we make, even if all of our hopes and dreams come true, death is waiting for you. And we're all powerless in the face of death. Until this Sunday morning. This Sunday morning when Jesus took a breath and He rose from the grave. Jesus' resurrection proclaims that there is a power greater than death and that there is life after death. And that means no matter what you face in this life, you can have hope. If you're here today and you are not a Christian, we're glad that you're here. Well, I want to tell you something that you already know. You already know deep down, and that is whatever you are hoping for in this life, it will not survive death. 
It will be snuffed out like all worldly hopes. So I ask you to abandon that and put your faith, put your hope in Christ above all else. Christian, all of Christianity is built on this one fact that Jesus rose from the dead. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then all of this, all of this is for nothing. It is useless. It is worse than nothing. It is a waste of our time. But if you believe, if if Jesus rose from the dead, if what we just read is true, and it is true, Do not fear death. Do not fear death. This brings us to the last point. How can you suffer so much loss and yet live a life full of hope? Because your hope in Christ is failure proof. Look at verse 8. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. As we discussed earlier, Mark leaves a lot out of this ending. Why does he do this? Well, I, I think, I don't know, I can't get into his mind, but I think he ends here because he wants his original audience to have the same facts in front of them that these women had. All that we have to go on and all that Mary have to go on is an empty tomb and the claim of a man that Christ has risen. We don't get to see Jesus' body. We don't get to put our hands in his wounds like Thomas did. Mark wants us to wrestle with this claim. Look at what he says in verse 7. Go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. The angel gives these women a message to relay to the disciples. And it's a message of restoration and of hope. You, you may recognize that this, this message he gives them is a callback. It's a reference back to the last conversations that, that he had with the disciples on Thursday night before the crucifixion. <clears throat> and notice how he specifically mentions Peter's name. Tell his disciples and Peter. Listen, I'm going to read from Mark chapter 14, verses 27 and 28. Feel free to to flip there. That's a tongue twister. Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. 
Of course, we know that Peter did fall away. He denied Christ three times before the rooster crowed. And if you remember the scene, as he denied Christ, Jesus looks over at him and locks eyes with him. And I think, and I don't know, but I think that this is probably the most shameful, humiliating moment of Peter's life. The biggest failure that he had ever done. And of course, the most public failure. Here we are 2,000 years late, year later, and we're still talking about this failure. Talk about humiliating. <clears throat> Something we don't think about much is what it was like being Peter that Easter weekend. That Friday, as he hid probably, he ran away and wept, we know that. That Saturday, as he, I, I can't imagine the sadness, the, the fear, the shame, the regret that he felt. He had left everything he had, he quit his job, he left his family and friends to follow Jesus, and in his moment of need, he failed Jesus miserably. Jesus sends this message. Go tell the disciples and Peter, Jesus is going before you to Galilee. There you will see Him, just as He told you. He's saying to the disciples, it's all going according to my plan. Go tell Peter, yes, Peter, you denied me, but I have not forgotten you. Yes, you failed me, but everything went according to my plan. You see, one of the reasons that we lose hope is because we fail. Now, we know that we are failures. We failed a number of times. We try to cover it up. I do. We don't want to fail, but we know that we will. And we feel like God's success rests on our shoulders. Have you failed God? Have you been disobedient to Him as Peter was? Jesus says, You will fail, but I won't. He says, it it may not go according to your plan, but it will always go according to mine. And I love you. You see, God doesn't have a plan B. I tell myself this all the time. God does not have a plan B. He has one plan, and it always comes to pass. And in it, he has accounted for your failure. And Jesus, he puts his finger, he puts his finger on the most shameful, the most humiliating failure of Peter's life. And he says, I want that. Give me that and I will use it for good. So I ask you, what do you regret? What is your failure The thing that you think, if I could just go back in time and change this one thing, my life 
would be what I want it to be. The thing for which you feel the most shame and regret. Jesus is putting his finger on that one thing. And he's saying, give me that. And watch, watch as I use it for good. You see, as Christians, we don't have to fear death. And we don't have to fear fear failure. Because Jesus is more powerful than both. When your hope is in King Jesus, you no longer need to build walls around your heart and around your life and around your family and around your money. One very simple application of this is take risks for the Lord. Take risks. What are you afraid of? If you fail, watch God transform your failures into glory for Him and for your good. There is nothing out there. There is nothing out there in the world that your king has not already conquered. Christian, this is good news. When your hope is in Christ, your hope is invincible. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for coming and for dying and for rising. Because Lord, you know that we need hope. We need hope to put one foot in front of the other. We need hope to get out of bed in the morning. We need hope to follow you. Lord, I believe in your resurrection. Would you help my unbelief? Would you help their unbelief? Lord, empower us to believe so that we can take risks for you and for your kingdom. Help us to put our hope in you so that we can have intimacy with you. Lord, we want to have intimacy with you both now and in the life to come. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.